You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormain.com. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. My next guest is Tess Gerritsen, a best-selling author known for her thrillers, including her series about homicide detective Jane Rizzoli and medical examiner Maura Isles that inspired the TNT show Rizzoli and Isles. Her latest book, I Know a Secret, was released this August. Thanks for coming in again. It's great to see you again. I really enjoyed um, the opportunity to be a bystander to your career. I've, I've seen now, you and I have now talked, this is the third time on air, and I knew you back when you were bringing your own books into the little bookstore in Falmouth. I know I told <laughs> you this story before, and I just remember thinking, wow, that is a hardworking author. And I think that many authors are. Yeah. And now you've really come to this place where um, you're well known within the television world, and you've expanded into film. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is the hallmark of a creative person, someone that just keeps evolving and evolving and evolving. Well, I think storytelling uh, can go in multiple media. Um, I mean, I happen to start off in books, but I realize that we all we all love stories, whether they're told to us on the radio or we watch them on movies or we read them in books. And the elements of drama remain the same no matter what the medium. I know that you told me that your the reason you cho- chose thrillers is because way back when you had this interesting interest in things that scared you. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was, uh, I owe that to my mother <laughs> because she loved horror films. Uh, she didn't understand English very well as uh, she was a, an immigrant from China, but she loved American horror films. So I grew up um, screaming in movie theaters. My, my little brother and I, we were taken to every scary movie. And I think I might have I learned then that the height of entertainment was to frighten your audience. And I've been trying to do that ever since. So how do you keep doing that year after year and book after book? Uh, well, you know, I never run out of stories to tell. I think what I run out of is is uh, steam to keep going sometimes. Um, so there's, there's always ideas around me, and I find that for me, creativity is about combining things. It's about taking uh, an element here and an element there, putting them together and saying, oh my gosh, this creates something completely new and different. It's like a new a chemical reaction that nobody has, has ever tried before. So uh, my, my antennae are always out. I'm you know, watching the news. I'm reading multiple papers and magazines and thinking, let's take that idea. Let's bring this idea together and see what happens. The book that was released this August, I Know a Secret, talks about something that was widely known of in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we haven't really focused on that much for the last few decades. No, no. But the players 
many of them are all still alive. Yes. Talk to me about the book and where that came from. Well, what you're talking about is satanic ritual abuse. That was the the term that was coined for that, or um, uh, ritual sexual abuse. I I think satanic ritual abuse is what usually people talk about. And it started in the 19, it was something that started in the early 1980s, um, where people began to have this, this idea that children were being abused by cults of Satanists in preschools, uh, various sites, um, and it's one of the stories that came out that really brought it home to me was something that happened in my hometown of San Diego. It was a, a man named uh, Daly Kiki. He was uh, he had a, was born with a congenital abnormality, so he looked a little funny. But he was a he was a churchgoer, and when they wanted somebody to take care of the children for Sunday school, he volunteered. Um, and then a couple of years later, one of the mothers went to the pastor and said, "I think he's abusing." my my child. Um, and it turned out later on, people didn't know this, but she was severely mentally ill. There was something really wrong with her. And she had these wild fantasies that Mr. Akiki was abusing her kid. So during the investigation, other parents were contacted and asked, has your child been abused by Mr. Akiki? And of course, you know, when you ask a question that way, parents get paranoid. They began to talk to their children. They brought in prosecutors. There was this long investigation. And the questioning of these children, who were then about three to five years old, um, was very suggestive. So before you knew it, these kids came up with these these uh, outrageous accusations. You know, he killed a giraffe in front of us. He took us out into the ocean. He threw us in the water. He, you know, things that were impossible. And yet they went ahead with that prosecution. And that poor man spent, I believe, 30 months in jail awaiting trial. The trial was the longest and most expensive trial in the history of San Diego. Um, And in the end, thank heavens, he was acquitted. Uh, uh, but you know the people who first realized he was innocent, his uh, the fellow prisoners in jail. They said this is this man is this man didn't do these things, and um, luckily for him, he was protected in jail by these prisoners who recognized an innocent man. Um, so he went. His life was was practically ruined, um, but because of subsequent articles that showed how innocent he really was, this was this was truly a witch hunt, um, he was able to reclaim his life when he got out. And this, this same scenario was played out again and again in courtrooms around the country and around the world, uh, where there was this upswelling, all these psychologists were coming out and saying, oh yes, you know, satanic ritual abuse is a real thing and it's happening all over the country and babies are being murdered. And I remember in Maine, I talked to a psychologist who told me, Satanists are all around us. They're killing babies. She really, really believed it. So that was, you know, it was, it was gripping the country, and yet um, almost in every case, uh, it was just made up. It was, it, was, it was trusting the memories or the imaginations of three-year-olds to convict people. Why do you think that this was so possible, that we were able to and I'm sure that there were people who were abusing children. Yes, there yes. always have been, sadly. Right. But there were so many people who weren't and were accused. Like, what was the psychology of the time that enabled this to kind of come to the surface? Well, that's an interesting. Um, you know, some analysts are saying this is this was sort of the rise of religious fundamentalism. It was happening at the same time, and they were riding this wave because the wave of of oh my gosh, there are evil Satanists all around would help 
drive people to the church. So, I mean, it was, it was to their advantage. There were also a couple of, um, <laughs> let's say, fraudulent psychologists who were making a lot of money pushing this whole theme. There was a, uh, there was a book, I can't, remember, I can't remember, Michelle Remembers, I think was the title of the book, uh, written by a psychiatrist, and he began to make a lot of money about, uh, you know, about the possibility that recovered memories, memories were possible, and um, began, became a media sensation. So the more you saw it on television, the more you heard about it, the more you believed that there really were rings of Satanists all over this country who were sacrificing children. When did you know that the time was right to um, start working on your book, I Know a Secret? About this topic? <laughs> About this topic, Well, yes. you know, um, I have this, I have a file, I call it the ideas file, where I, I pull out clippings and I put them in this file. Maybe it's not the right time to write about them, but eventually it comes around. And I think this Dale Kiki case, I, I was following that since the late 90s. And I had that in my folder and I always, it was always in the back of my mind. This is a story, what happened to those children. I mean, after you testify about somebody, maybe what if they did send somebody to jail for 20 years? And all of a sudden, 20 years later, you're a grown-up child and you think, I don't really think that happened. Um, what would happen you know, to these children? And what would happen to the man who's finally released from prison, an innocent man? So that was one of the themes I was playing with. And I, I blended it together in my usual way with other ideas. Uh, and that's where I Know, I know a Secret came together, which was um, about one of those ritual abuse cases, and also one of those children who's now grown up. What if she has a secret um, that she doesn't want anybody to know about? So uh, the story evolved from there. And also, I, I also uh, pulled in a lot of things about um, the symbolism of religious paintings because I was, I was fascinated by that topic as well. You also pulled in cinematography. Yes, <laughs> has become an increasing interest of yours. Yes, um, it's uh, my my son and I made a horror film uh, called Island Zero, which was filmed entirely in Maine. It's now making the rounds of, of uh, film festivals in the country, um, and I I found that that community is so much fun, and they're quirky and they're sweet. Uh, the horror film audience, um, and I think of my own mother in that in that regard. They're they're really nice people. I mean, they they maybe they look a little scary. <laughs> Um, but they're really fun people, and I wanted to bring some aspect of horror filmmaking and the horror film audience into the story. I know that the book is start starting to sound like, what is this book about? Because it has all these different themes in it. Um, but yeah, horror films uh, have a big role in this, in this book. What was it like to go back and work with uh, your son on something that you yeah. shared with your mother? Uh, you know, my son. My son was already doing documentaries, um, and he and I had had we had this quirky idea of let's make a horror film together. And I don't think he ever actually thought it would happen until I I showed him my script. Um, and so it was it was a family project, and our primary objective was to have fun. Uh, but it turned out into a much bigger project than we realized, and it became a feature film, a SAG production, um, and. We, we ended up getting, you know, I think we ended up with a really wonderful 90-minute film, um, which has been shown around the country now. Um, but 
that little taste of filmmaking and you know collaboration with my son was was so great. It was so much fun that we're making another film together now. Um, it's this is a documentary about a topic that we're both interested in. Um, but I think that we're going to be continuing this collaboration, whether it's documentaries or whether it's narratives, um, because I think we both want to be storytellers. We just want to change our medium. So, what do you find the differences between doing? Um a, a book mm-hmm. and working on a television show and working on a script for a film. Well, it's amazing how close, I mean, how, how similar writing a script is to writing a novel. Um, they both have their difficulties, but in, in so many ways, I think writing scripts is, is more fun. Um, writing a novel, you have, you have a lot of narrative to, you have to tell. You have to set the scene, you have to describe things. And in a film, it's very fast-paced. I mean, you're going from a 400-page novel to a 100-page script, um, and that script is, is all told in dialogue. And your partner in filmmaking is the actor. Uh, because so much really depends on, on casting the right person. You cast the wrong person, the best script in the world is going to be destroyed. Um, you cast the right person, even a flawed script will come out okay on film. As a writer, how much say do you have in that? Um, well, when we made Island Zero, we had, of course, we had total control. We could decide who we wanted to cast. And we, um, we actually went through uh, quite a few uh, screen tests, um, which nowadays is done on your iPhone. <laughs> you just get these videos and say, well, that, that person will work or that person won't work. So I had, we had full control then. But then when you go to something like, you know, network television, that's somebody else making the decisions. I think that you and I have talked about this before, um, that with Rizzoli and Isles, it's it's their translation of your right. book. Right. And yet there's still some piece of you that's that's kind of working on this process. Yeah. What's that like to it was it was a little I mean I guess it was a little disconcerting to see that my characters that I had so thoroughly pictured in my head looked very different on television um, but I, I always say that writing books is like composing the original melody and who knows what Hollywood will do with that whether they'll turn it into rap or whether they'll you know turn it into jazz it's still an interpretation of the original melody um, so after I became accustomed to seeing these two beautiful women play, Part, play the characters that in my books are not particularly beautiful. Um, you know, I was able to make the transition, and, and there are things that TV does that they need to do um, that you that you don't do in books. Like you know, they have to be more glamorous. They um, and they added humor, which was a really really important part of, of the success of the TV series. I know that when I. When I write for the magazines, I have the benefit of these photographers that yeah. work with me. So I don't have to create, I, I will create a visual sense in, mm-hmm. in the piece that I write, but I don't have to do it to the extent that I would if it was just a straight up novel. As a novelist, you actually have to do all of it. You have to create the scene. Right. And you have to, you have to, you can't create it until you've seen it in your head. And that's a large part of it is just is visualization and knowing exactly what this house looks like or what this character looks like and then being able to convey that to the reader. And that's where all the work of novel writing comes in. I think that um, you can do that in very shorthand with a, with a film script. So since you have to do this in your head as a novelist and put it down on paper, 
And then you've now gone to a different medium entirely, which is filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe not entirely. But now you have the opportunity to take what's in your head and actually translate it externally. Yeah. What has that been like for you? Uh, You know, it's um, in a way it's frustrating because what you see in your head is never what you end up with in a film. (laughs) When um, When we were filming Island Zero, I had in my idea these settings. But we were we were limited by reality, um, so we would drive around the mid coast, and or my you know our producer did, and would find things that she thought would be okay, um, but they were never exactly the way I wanted them to be. So if, if we had a bigger budget, maybe we could have created some of these settings. But uh, you know you work you work with what you what you can pay for. So what does your next project look like? Well, um, my son and I are making um, uh, a documentary about the very, very long, centuries-old relationship between humans and pigs. Um, it, uh, they say, why, why are you making a, a movie about pigs? Well, I was in Turkey during Ramadan and having this craving for bacon. And I thought, why don't they eat? What, what is it about pigs um, that makes them unclean? Why, why did Jews and Muslims decide that they should not be eating pork? And that was a mystery for me. I wanted to know why. Um, and then we have this old religious explanation that it's because of trichinosis that they saw the relationship between trichinosis and, and eating pork. Um, but then I was reading a little bit into the history, and th- about 3,000, a little over 3,000 years ago, there's evidence of pork consumption in that area. And then somewhere in the next thousand years, it became forbidden. What happened during that period of time? Why did the pig suddenly fall out of favor? So it's a mystery we're tracking down. It's a historical and it's an archaeological mystery, a cultural mystery. Um, And the more we look into it, the more complicated the story becomes. It's not trichinosis and probably wasn't trichinosis um, because only a minority of people who get trichinosis actually get sick. Um, and also you get sick from anthrax. You can get sick from, from being around sheep. So why didn't they ban the sheep? Um, so that's, that's the mystery we're tracking down. And, and we've already been interviewing archaeologists. We've interviewed um, a, number of, a number of pig experts. We're going to England uh, in October to talk to the, world, the world's best geneticists in pigs. Um, and I think we're going to find out that it may have to do with climate change. A, a particular changes in the climate in that region uh, between 3,000 and 2,000 years ago. Well, play that out a little bit for me. <laughs> Pigs need water. Pigs absolutely require lots of water. They can't sweat. So what happens when the area where you've been raising your pigs becomes a desert? All of a sudden, you are devoting precious resources to keeping your, your pigs alive. Um, and is that the best way? Is that the best uh, way to, to use your water? Um, maybe it became too expensive to keep pigs around. Maybe there was an alternate sense of uh, source of protein that had just come in, like chickens. Uh, so, and there's a lot of things that were happening around 3,000 years ago, including massive collapse of Bronze Age civilization. So, a lot of stuff was happening right around the time when it decided, was decided that pigs are no longer supposed to be eaten. I think it's great fun that you could be sitting around in 
turkey during Ramadan and be thinking, I'd like some bacon. <laughs> and then somehow you've now managed to transition all the way across to, let's make a documentary about yeah. pigs and humans. I mean, that the fact that you have such ability to work with the questions that arise is it's great. Well, it, you know, it also helps that I, you know, I sit around with my son and I go, you know, this is an interesting topic, but where should we go with this? And, and he gets excited and then I get more excited. And so um, even though that, that's the core of our documentary, the story is much, much bigger than that. It's about the pig itself as an animal. Um, and that's where he sort of took off and went running in one direction. And we found out this movie is, is getting bigger and bigger. So it includes intelligence. It includes uh, this, the feral swine problem. And it includes cultural attitudes of various, you know, various places around the world towards, towards this animal. Um, you know, there's, there's a tri- there are tribes in, in, New- in Papua New Guinea where they worship their pigs. Um, and then there are there are pig owners here who think of them as their families and dress them up in pretty clothes and sleep with them. So you have this this wide range of oh pigs are dirty they're filthy too I love my pig, and that it's I think humans humans have either a positive a really positive or a really negative attitude towards pigs. It evokes emotions this animal, um, which is is uh, I think probably the real story is the human story. Uh, the pigs are just kind of the the uh, the inspiration for how people react to this one symbol. As you've been talking, I've been thinking about the, the zookeeper's wife, which I watched the movie and uh-huh. I read the book, and I loved the movie. Also, really loved the book. They're two completely different forms, from yeah. what I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I loved about the book is something that you're describing, which is that it wasn't just one story about um, people that were helping Jewish um, citizens of Warsaw escape from the Nazis. It became about the animals, it became about um, the politics of the time, a little bit about art. And what you're describing as you're talking about your documentary and even some of the other things you've done is that you, you're, you're pulling in these strands, you know, to create this really bigger picture of something. Well, I think the best documentaries are not precisely what they start out to be. <laughs> they always end up changing because the documentary affects the filmmaker. Um, and I think that's what's, that's what's happening with us as we delve deeper and deeper into this, this subject. So if that's the case about this documentary, then how have your books changed you over the course of your life? Well, I think because I write crime novels, it may be that I'm, I, I am more focused on things that can go wrong. You know, the, what's the worst that can happen? That's sort of my mantra as a storyteller. Um, and I'm really good at imagining that. Um, so as a mother, as a young mother, you know, you, you take your lectures, you see your kids off at the, at, the bus, at the bus stop and immediately your mind goes to what's the worst that can happen to them today. Um, and so I think in a way I live, I live in a state of paranoia that the worst that can happen will happen. And then when it does, you're not surprised. <laughs> um, so that, that may be the, the downside of writing in my genre is knowing how bad the world can be and how bad fate can be. Yeah, I mean, as you were talking about um, I Know a Secret and you were talking about ritual satanic abuse, I mean, the idea that when our children are out of our sight, someone could harm them Mm -hmm. in a very significant way that could then impact them for the rest of their lives. I think that's a deeply held fear of parents. Yes. 
Yeah, and now that I'm a grandparent, it's it, it's doing it's happening all over again, you know. And um, so that's that's the downside. But the upside of being a writer is that you're engaged in so many in so many things all around you. Um, it's part of your job to be aware of what's happening, and it's a little bit like being a journalist. I think journalists always have their antennae out. Um, they go on vacation, and wow, there's a story coming out of that. So journalists and novelists, we see stories everywhere, and it makes the world a perennially interesting place. Which is interesting because a lot of us think of writers as people who kind of hole up in their little caves and then don't come out until it's time for dinner. Yeah. But um, well, that's true too. <laughs> well, that, it, it, I think that's right. I think yeah. that when I talked to Linda Greenlaw about her writing, she fishes during the summer and she writes during the winter. Mm-hmm. So she's got an in and an out presence and I'm sure that something similar must be the case in your situation that's well it's it's certainly true what um if you have a deadline when you know I have to turn this book in a certain time then you kind of go into your cave and you're not seen again but um I my philosophy as I've gotten older is time is short life is short and if you want to experience things do it now while you still can walk um and I've think that that feeds into the creativity. It's I wouldn't be able to write the books I do if I didn't travel, if I didn't have multiple interests, if I wasn't reading crazy, you know, documentary books or you know, watching crazy films. Um, it's it's just a matter of being um, my husband calls me a sponge and that's really what it is. It's about being a sponge and and trying to take in all kinds of weird things because they'll end up in a book some way, some way. Is that also the value of something like a liberal arts education? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, I, even though I'm a medical doctor, my uh, undergraduate was anthropology. And I, I think anthropology, sociology, those are two excellent um, undergraduate majors to prepare you for a wide variety of things. I use anthropology, I think, quite a bit as a writer. I remember when I, I did a book called Gravity about the International Space Station. I went down to, um, you know, to Johnson Space Center, and people go, How, what does that have to do with anthropology? Well, it's, um, it's a way of identifying tribes. So you look at the tribes and you think, which tribe am I, you know, am I working with now? And, and um, the way I approached NASA, which is a civilian space agency, um, was, uh, was to tell them that the bad guy in my book was not them. They were, even though they were a series of disasters, they did everything right. Um, and the villains were actually military, which is a different tribe. And that, I think, helped them feel that they could cooperate with me. So um, anytime you approach a new group of people, you understand what are their values, what do they care about, um, how will I not in any way overstep the bounds that they have established for themselves. Well, I'm certain that you and I will have a chance to talk again because it seems like the uh, things that are swirling about you are, are never ending. and it's, it's a fascinating, fascinating thing to be um, in the presence of. I've been speaking with Tess Gerritsen, who is a best-selling author known for her thrillers, and most recently for her book, I Know a Secret, and also the movie that she did with her son called... Island Zero. Island Zero, and an upcoming documentary, apparently, about humans and pigs. Called Pig. Called Pig. (laughs) Thank you so much for coming in today, and thank you for all the things that you're doing to bring interesting ideas into our world. Thank you. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music are by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producers are Paul Koenig and Brittany Cost. 
Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. 